and like crowd surf or something out here. Um, thanks, Brad. That's a powerful song. Um, yeah, the other thing that's a little unnerving, other than that that's not our normal offertory, um, is one of the elders has a horn down here. I'm not sure why. Uh, is that the heresy horn, Greg? Is that what that is? Someone has, someone has left a horn, one of those loud horns on the front row. I'm not sure what part that's going to play in our worship later on. We'll, we'll see. You know, as Daniel mentioned, uh, we're in the middle of a series, a three-week series on generosity. We do this every year. Uh, it is connected practically in helping us with our capital campaign to pay off our debt on our facilities. Um, and I showed you this last week, the, um, the little green slice is what remains of our debt, okay? We have about 10% of our debt remaining, and so, Lord willing, we'll be debt-free in less than two years. Um, and next week, we will make our pledges. As Daniel mentioned, these are kind of above and beyond sacrificial gifts for us um, to help retire that debt. And... Um, Every year we teach on this, and it's, honestly, it's really not about the debt. It's really not about the mortgage. It is first and foremost about our hearts um, and protecting us from the very things that Brad was singing about just a few moments ago. Um, and so what I'd like to do today is look back at two verses in Hebrews chapter 13 that I skipped. Some of you have been angsty about this ever since I skipped these two verses in Hebrews 13. We're teaching through the book of Hebrews. So if you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews 13, uh, there's some tremendous heart-guarding verses here for us uh, on this matter of generosity and uh, avarice and apathy. So as you find you were there, I'd like to pray for us. Pray with me, please. Father, again, have mercy on us. Calm our distracted minds and give us ears to hear your good words for us now. Help us not, not to be mindful of others but of ourselves before your word. Help us not to um, defend ourselves against it but to gladly welcome it as your kindness to us. So Spirit, come and enable this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you remember, the writer of Hebrews has been teaching us throughout the book, as the banner says on the back, that Jesus is greater. Um, that's been his primary contention, his primary press upon us. Um, and he is calling us as a people to persevere in trusting and worshiping Jesus and no other gods and worship him in such a way that it's pleasing to him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable or pleasing worship with reverence and awe. And just a verse or so later as chapter 13 starts, we see that one of the marks of God-pleasing worship, uh, there is a kind of love that is pleasing to God. It is brotherly love. We are to let brotherly love continue. But there is also, in Hebrews 13, a kind of love that is displeasing to God 
that is unacceptable worship. And that's where we pick up today in the verses that we want to look at in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 13. It simply says, keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. To love our money um, is a love that taints our worship. Um, it's a common warning in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love your money, you can lose your faith, Paul says. Jesus says something equally troubling in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus says, if you love your money by serving it, you cannot love and serve God. So this is serious business that we're talking about today. Everything that matters most to us, everything that matters most to us, is at stake today. And I'm gonna let you just think about that for a minute because my iPad has just blanked out my next page of notes. <laughs> so I am going to take care of that. But you just think about what was just said. Um, because I'm really familiar with this, but I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, this is not good. Matter of fact, you might wanna just ask your neighbor what they think about what those scriptures are saying. <laughs> And uh, hopefully, by the grace of God, we'll return to this quickly. Let's see. Yeah, seriously, say hi to your neighbor. <laughs> you know, uh, look something up on your phone. I'll be back. I'll be back shortly, as soon as this tragedy is averted. All right. I have no idea what I was going to say next, but if you skip down a page or so, and, and today would be the day that normally I give Parks a paper copy. Uh, forgot to do that today, Parks. This is really fortuitous. I would be able to get that and carry on. But if you'll skip down to the first part of verse 5, that slide, Parks, thank you. Um, keep your life free from our money. If we love our money... We simply cannot love Jesus, okay? Um, we cannot offer pleasing worship to our God. 
So the writer of Hebrews is bringing us a command that is for our good. Okay. Um, and it's a command that we dare not disobey. So think with me, what does it look like to love your money? What, what does that look like? Um, James Roberts tells us an extreme example in his book, Shiny Objects. He says, surely a man the size of Walmart worker, um, Jadimitai Damur, would control the expected Black Friday shopping crowds. He was six feet five inches tall and weighed 270 pounds. In fact, he was chosen to work the front entrance of the Walmart store at the Green Acres Mall in Valley Stream, New York, precisely because of his hulking frame. Uh, but alas, he was no match for the crowd of 2,000 Walmart shoppers eagerly awaiting the 5 a.m. 5 a.m. store opening on Black Friday. A few minutes before the store opening, the throng could no longer be held back. The sliding glass doors that separated the would-be shoppers from the holiday bargains, um, doorbusters, he says, takes on a whole new meaning at this point in time. The doors begin to bow from the bodies pressed against them. Six to ten Walmart workers attempted to no avail to push back, but they were fighting a losing battle. And in an instant, the glass doors shattered and the frenzied mob surged into the store in search of the heavenly discounted doorbusters available in limited quantities for a short period of time, which you all are familiar with. Tragically, Damour was thrown to the floor and trampled to death in the stampede that streamed over him in pursuit of bargains on big screen TVs and electronics and such. One shopper, Kimberly Cribs of Queens, said that the crowd acted like savages and the shopper's bad behavior didn't end with the trampling of Damour. When the shoppers were informed that the store would need to be cleared because of the death of an employee, many continued to shop yelling that they had been waiting in line since the day before. Many of them had to be physically escorted from the store. So I think we can safely say that if you trampled someone to death on Black Friday, um, you love your money, okay? You have succumbed to the love of money. But it, it's more subtle than that you know, 99.9% .9 of the time. Um, think of it this way, in 1950, the average home size was 983 square feet. And 3.37 people lived in it. By 2009, the average home square footage had ballooned to 2,700 square feet with only 2.57 occupants. And then, if you look at this, in 59 years, the average American home grew by 175%, while the average family size shrunk by 24%. Who knew? The love of money and stuff comes creeping in on us, whether we see it or not, and whether we want to see it or not. Um, several years ago, there's a man named Millard Fuller. He was uh, involved in Habitat for Humanity, and he addressed the National Press Club 
on public radio and he, rem he was remembering at the time he gave that address, uh, he was speaking a workshop that he held at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary with 200 pastors in attendance. And the assembled pastors quickly point towards greed and selfishness as the reason that the church never had enough money to assist others uh, as the way that they should. And so Millard asks this question. He says, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it is sinful in the eyes of God? And he said, raise your hand if you think so. All 200 pastors raised their hand. He says, okay, then can you tell me exactly what size the precise square footage a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? And there's silence until this little voice in the back says, when it is bigger than mine. Right? And that's how we think about greed and covetousness and avarice. Um, we don't want to admit to being greedy. And there's all kinds of studies that endorse this. Um, Zogby did one. Um, they identified, and the respondents identified greed and materialism as the number one most urgent problem in American culture. A Vanity Fair poll said 78% of Americans disagree with the Gordon Gecko quote that greed is good. Um, another one, what is the deadliest sin? Greed was number one. Um, but blogger Ted Schofield writes that surprisingly, although everyone thinks greed's a terrible problem, most people don't think they are greedy. BBC does this poll on the seven deadly sins. Guess which one comes in last? Greed. Greed, it's, it's last on the list in answer to two questions. Which sin have you ever committed and which sin have you committed in the past month? Plenty of, of the Brits said they were lazy or proud or envious or angry, but greedy was last on the list. Tim Keller says, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. He says, greed hides itself from the victim. And so every day, every day of my life and your life, Greed is stalking you. Like a lion hidden in the bush, it is stalking you and your family. Um, I ran across research this week that said in the 1970s, an average American would be exposed to about 500 ads a day. 500 ads a day. By 2006, it was estimated to be about 5,000 ads a day. And I've seen one estimate that today it could be as high as 10,000 ads. Now, that sounded really high to me. And it sounded really high to a guy like Ron Marshall. And he, he's, a, he's a marketing guy. And he says, he says, like many, I thought that number sounded a little far-fetched. So I actually decided to dedicate one entire day to test it myself. He said, I asked my wife and anyone I thought I would come in contact with to not distract me too much. I wanted to pay keen attention to the direct and indirect advertising impressions I was exposed to. So on my, on my test day, he says, I woke up in the morning to my, Sonio, my Sony radio alarm clock. Heard about 14 ads on my local station before I opened my eyes and hit the snooze button on my Sony clock. 
I used my Panasonic TV and Dish Network receiver remotes, noticed a Kenwood receiver and Toshiba DVD player, and watched, listened to 46 TV commercials as I got going. I got dressed in my Fruit of the Loom undershirt, big dog shirt, Wrangler jeans, Nike shoes, 11 brand advertisements are within eyesight in my closet. I'm not digging for them. I opened my pantry and counted 214 food brand labels, all colorful and professionally created. I get out my box of Kellogg's cereal for my Jersey-made milk and count 62 more product brands. I open a can of Folgers coffee to brew in my Mr. Coffee Maker. I've gotten about 487 ad exposures and I haven't even finished breakfast. He says, I ended my experiment here. I was brand weary and knew the exposures would become even more frequent when I stepped out my front door. I concluded that they were probably telling the truth. And the amazing thing is he is doing this research so that he can help advertisers figure out how to be more effective in placing those ads in your life. So keep your life free from the love of money. But how? When you're bombarded like that, how do you keep your life free? And he helps us, the writer of Hebrews helps us in the next little bit of verse five. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. And if you are afflicted with what has been called affluenza, you can almost sense the disappointment in your soul in that council. Oh, but it's almost Christmas. Oh, be content with what you have. Be satisfied with what you have. Let it be enough. Enough. Um, theologian John Owen wrote in the 1600s, and he defined contentment by these four things. To be without complaining at God's provision, without envy of others' prosperity, without anxiety about the future, or covetous desires for things we wish we had. That, he said, nearly 400 years ago, is what it means to be content. Without complaining, envy, anxiety, or covetousness. You can, you can put it more positively. Um, and to do that, I would look for these two things in the mirror when you get ready for bed tonight. Okay. Am, I, am I thankful and am I generous? Then I am content. Think about those with me. Are you thankful for what you have? Or are you inclined, more inclined to complain about what you have? Do you give thanks more than you complain about your house or your apartment? About your car? About your clothes? About your job? About your bank account? About your spouse? about your parents. Contentment is fueled and manifested by thankfulness. 
It's the mark of contentment. The second one is, are you generous with what you have? Um, there's a guy named Joey uh, Prusak, and he worked for Dairy Queen. And one day, he's behind the counter, he's serving uh, Dairy Queen customers their food. He noticed that a blind man who was waiting in line had dropped a $20 bill on the floor and a lady standing in line quietly behind him bent down and put the $20 into her own pocket. Young Joey approached the lady asking her to give the $20 bill back to the blind man and she refused quite aggressively claiming it was her own. And then Joey, he did something really interesting. Um, Quietly, he opened up his own wallet and handed the blind man a $20 bill of his own. The man took the money gratefully, and the Dairy Queen resumed its normal business. Except that a customer in line had observed the whole episode and sent an email to the Dairy Queen management informing them of Joey's act of generosity. DQ management then posted it on Facebook, and the event went viral. A couple of days later, Joey gets a phone call from a guy named Warren Buffett. Billionaire Warren Buffett, who puzzlingly is evidently a big investor in Dairy Queen. Okay. Who would have known? Who would have guessed, right? And he invites Joey to the next Dairy Queen investors meeting. Um, because he wanted him to be there as an, as an exemplary part of the fab fabric of the organization. Do you, do you often choose to be generous? Is generous a good way to describe you? Has anyone ever accused you of being generous? See, contentment is both fueled and marked by generosity. Are you content with what you have as a kindness from God? Ted Schofield writes, um, how much would it take for us to have enough money? Remarkably, he says, studies show that most people, regardless of income, answer the question the same way. We need about 10% more to feel comfortable. It doesn't matter, he says, whether you earn 30,000 or 60,000 or 250,000 or a cool million, everybody thinks they need to be okay about 10% more. 10% more. Immanuel Kant, philosopher Immanuel Kant, saw this when he observed give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything. We are insatiable. We are insatiable. Where, where can we find contentment? One approach um, is exemplified by the story of a Jewish man in Hungary. He went to his rabbi and he complains. Uh, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? The rabbi thinks and he says to him, take your goat into the room with me and come back in one week. And the guy goes, what? But 
He does what his rabbi says. Into the one room where nine people are living, he now brings his goat. A week later, the man returns looking more distraught than before. He says, we can't stand it. Tells the rabbi, the goat is filthy. The goat is stinky. The goat is in the room with nine people. And the rabbi says, go home and let the goat out and come back in a week. A week later, man returns. He's radiant. He says, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there's no goat. It's only the nine of us. And see, this is one approach to contentment. It is to make yourself so miserable that when you relieve the misery, you feel better. And um, the writer of Hebrews points to us a better, more satisfying way. Um, God's promised presence. Okay? Look uh, in verse 5 again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never fail you nor forsake you. And he's really being emphatic here. We don't pick it up in our language, but in their language, um, there's a commentator long ago, Matthew Henry. He describes how this promise would have read in their language, in the Greek language. He says, I will never, no, never leave thee nor ever forsake thee. He says there are no fewer than five negatives heaped together to confirm the promise the true believer shall have the gracious presence of God with him in life at death and forever. We, we sing a hymn that really expresses this, right? Here's the lyric. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not, Desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. There are five negatives he uses here to drive it home. Never, 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 never will Christ forsake us. He will always be with us. And he's drawing on a recurring Old Testament theme from, from Deuteronomy Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It is the Lord your God who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua, just a page or so over in your Bible, says the same thing. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, he says, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. So over and over and over again, we are encouraged that to have God is enough for us and he will not forsake us no matter what. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in all kinds of interesting crevices in the New Testament too. In John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. We'll be satisfied with that. In Philippians, Paul famously says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. That's not a, a verse about being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's a verse about being able to be content in all circumstances because Christ is enough. Second Corinthians, Paul again says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. It will satisfy you. There's a story of one of the old Puritans. He sits down alone to have a meal and he finds that all he has is bread and water. And he exclaims, what? All this and Jesus Christ too? Keep your life free from the love of money. We are to be content. We are able to be content with what God offers and provides based on his promised presence. I love this tweet from author Ann Voskamp. She says, contentment is never a matter of circumstances. Contentment is always a matter of communion, a daily embracing of God. Keep your life free from the love of money, verse five, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promised presence of God is enough for us to be content with what we have. And money of any amount, the Bible says repeatedly from all angles, can never satisfy us. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Henry Kissinger uh, observed this. He said, to Americans, usually tragedy is wanting something very badly and not getting it. Many people have had to learn in their private lives and nations have had to learn it in their historical experience that perhaps the worst form of tragedy is wanting something badly, getting it and finding it empty. And so in verse five, again, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say then, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? He's, he, is, he is saying God is our helper so we can be confident and we don't have to give in to fear. And he's quoting one of the Psalms here from Psalm 118, which reads this way. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust even in princes. And so the psalmist in Psalm 118 is suffering, but he doesn't trust in the wealth of men or the influence of men, but he trusts in God. And that psalm is quoted here in the letter to the Hebrews because that little church was suffering too. You remember back in in chapter 10? 
Um, Verse 32, it says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they had suffered for their faith. They'd suffered reproach and affliction. Some were in prison and they had had their own property seized. And it would have been easy for them to seek a more prosperous, less troublesome route to compromise their faith in fear of what people might do to them. And so he reminds them, and he reminds us, that God is our helper. The all-knowing, all-ruling, all-powerful Lord of all who loves us is our helper. And it's interesting, if you go back to Psalm 118, and you look at this early part, before what we quoted, it all, all their confidence hinges on one trait. Okay. See if you can pick it up. It's very subtle. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. You pick up on what underlies their confidence in God? That they are loved unshakably by him. This God, this God whose unfailing love endures forever, he has promised with that five times, no, 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 I will never fail you. That God has promised that. This God, the God who loves unfailingly, has said he will be our helper. On your hardest days, when your bank account is is negative, God says, I will not fail you, I'll be with you. Kent Hughes challenges us, our contentment must announce to our fellow Christians and the world that Christ is with us and for us and that he is enough for us. God is enough. He is our helper. He will never fail or forsake us. We can be content because of his great love for us. And I like these quotes from Ken Boa. They're helpful, so I put them up here for you. Our contentment is not grounded, is grounded not in how much we have, but in the one who has us. Contentment is not the fulfillment of what we want, but the realization of how much we already possess in Christ. Since we are complete in Christ, we are free to serve others instead of using them in the quest to meet our needs. And so we fulfill that that requirement for God-honoring worship, for God-pleasing worship. We love our brothers. We are free to love our brothers. Now, the verses that follow, many scholars will say, start a new thought and a new paragraph. But I think there's a thread that kind of runs into these next two verses, and we'll look at them before we close. He leaves this conversation about contentment, and he says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I can't help but think in the back of his mind, he's thinking about their exemplary contentment. That's what he just talked about. Exemplary contentment. And if there's ever a day when leaders in the church need to exemplify contentment, it's now. I mean, we live in a day where there are some pastors 
I saw this, I, I researched this online, live in a $10.5 million house that is 17,500 square feet. Pastor. Um, who drive $355,000 Bentleys and would fly in a private jet if they could get their congregation to buy it. Um, if you're a leader at North Wake, oh, how we need you to model contentment with what you have to our people. And um, contentment in the promised presence of God. You know, church, towards that end, our leaders, every year I ask them to lead by example in making their pledges ahead of time so that I can let you know uh, of their example in these matters. So they've, there's a group of about, um, you know, if, North Wake, if you took the North Wake pie, about an eighth of that pie are leaders that have turned in pledges ahead of time. And uh, that eighth of the pie has already given more than a quarter of what we need to stay on tack to be out of debt in two years. They've already given, there's already, we give about $200,000 a year towards our building commitments and our leaders, this little one-eighth of the pie has already given over 50,000 of that, committed to do that. Um, I, I love our leaders at North Wake because they lead by example and it's easy for me to say, imitate their faith, okay? Imitate their faith. And so next week you get a chance to imitate their faith. And it's all based in this closing truth that I'll share with you today from verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Um, Jesus Christ is the same. He's, he's trustworthy. He's our helper. Bump that up against this contrast from Proverbs 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist when your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Jesus Christ, though, is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is our helper. He will not fail us nor forsake us. So it's good today just to think honestly. Do I love money? Have I fallen prey to the 10,000 messages a day that are saying, you need me? Do you hope in money? Do you trust in it? Do you delight in it? Do you think it will satisfy you? Or are you able to be increasingly generous or does fear keep you from that? Are you content and thankful for what you have? Don Kistler says that the person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. I pray that that does not describe you. Okay. And I ran across a prayer that to me is exemplary in this area of trust. It's from a man named Blaise Pascal. He was a, a mathematician and theologian, uh, again, almost 400 years ago. And uh, not to say that you can't ask God for things, that's not what he's saying at all, but he's content with whatever God gives him. And so let me read it over you um, as a prayer. You're welcome to read along, it'll be on the screen. It goes like this. 
Well, Lord, with perfect consistency of mind, help me to receive all manner of events. For we know not what to ask, and we cannot ask for one event rather than another without presumption. We cannot desire a specific action without presuming to be a judge and assuming responsibility for what in your wisdom you may hide from me. Oh Lord, I know only one thing, and that is that it is good to follow you and wicked to offend you. Beyond this, I do not know what is good for me, whether health or sickness, riches or poverty, or anything else in this world. This knowledge surpasses both the wisdom of men and of angels. It lies hidden in the secrets of your providence, which I adore and will not dare to pry open. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us. We are stalked and hunted every day by lesser gods that would would woo our trust and our affection and our delight and our hope. Help us to stand against it because we know that you are our helper. You will never fail us nor forsake us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.